Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. I want to go back tonight and uh, return to the topic that I talked about last Sunday evening, which are the marks of the church, and give a little bit more generic background to the marks of the church, but then speak about the first of the marks of the church, which is the preaching of God's Word. So a few questions to get our, our thoughts going. Does the church have a purpose in this world beyond making it possible to have Nonprofit status so that we can give uh, tax deductibly. The answer is yes. Does the church have a purpose in this world beyond it being a convenient way for a group of people to pull off certain programs? And if she does have a purpose beyond those things, uh, what should she primarily be doing? What is the church to be doing? And how can, how can we tell if the church, or if my church, is fulfilling God's purpose for her? Right? What's, and so that, that leads into the question of these marks of the church. The three notes or the three marks of the church. Right? What is a true church? And, and I'm not answering the question of, the question, what is a good church? That's a different question entirely. Well, not entirely. But what is a true church? Right. The question is what makes for a church, a true church as opposed to a, a not church. Right? An unchurch. A synagogue of Satan. Or a non-profit group. Or an NGO. Right? Um, since the time of the Reformation, Scripture has been understood to teach that there are three marks, three essential things that have to be present for a church to be a church. In a nutshell, what are those three? This is a quiz. What was the first one? I already, yeah, I said that tonight. That's, a, that's an easy one, right. Preaching sacraments discipline. Preaching sacraments discipline but to elaborate let me put each of those into a phrase because just the presence of those things doesn't guarantee anything right just the presence of those doesn't guarantee anything you have to you you can have unbiblical preaching Um, you can have improper administration of the sacraments you can have unhelpful and unbiblical and oppressive discipline Right, So, the presence guarantees nothing. What a church must have to be a true church are the following. The true preaching of the Word of God. The right administration of the sacraments of Christ Jesus. The ones that He commanded. right, And then ecclesiastical discipline uprightly administered. So that's, that fills out the picture a little bit. That elaborates more. It's not just preaching, sacraments, church discipline, but it's true preaching, right administration, and uprightly administered ecclesiastical discipline. Now, why was that question necessary during the time of the Reformation? Because of Roman Catholic distortions 
particularly their answer about apostolic succession. That was their answer for everything. Right? That's what they based their authority on, that, there were, that they had a string back to the apostles, and that organic connection gave them authority. The reformers, for the good of the souls, sought a scriptural answer, and instead of pointing to apostolic succession, what did they point to? Apostolic teaching. Right? What did the apostles teach? What did, they, what did the Holy Spirit record in the Scripture? So it wasn't just this you know, thing they couldn't even prove, which was apostolic succession, but it was adherence to the teaching of the apostles. Right? Why is this question necessary today? Why, why do we have to think about this? Wasn't this just something that the Reformation, that the Reformers had to think about? Why is it something that I'm preaching on and we have to think about? Well, because the church always will need reformation according to the God's Word. It always will need reformation because the church is filled with and led by sinful men. Okay? And so God's Word, the, the church needs to reform according to God's Word always. There will always be a process of losing and reclaiming. That's going to be the history of the church until Jesus returns. Losing, repenting, losing, repenting, returning. Remember Israel when they were warned not to forget the Lord when they entered the land flowing with milk and honey. Right? We'll, we'll need the same reminder. The heritage in this country, the Christian heritage in this country is incredible. Right? It's incredible. And yet we are, uh, we are not there anymore. We live during a peaceful age. The importance of the church and her calling in the world gets distorted. Right? There are many evangelical uh, mega church pastors whose images preach in various venues who would have different answers to the questions of what makes up a church, what makes the notes of the church. Right? And, and I would say they have barely one mark, let alone three. And here's another reason why we have to answer this, because we live in an antinomian age. Right? And an antinomian age means that we like to say, in the face of, of law, don't tell me what to do. And we live in an individualistic age, which means in the, in the face of the, the corporate we like to say, well, you know, to each his own. I'll go my way, you go your way. We also live in an anti-authority age, which is just straight up, you can't tell me what to do. You don't have jurisdiction over here. Right? So we live in, we, we live in, this, uh, in that sort of age, and so we have to think about these questions. We have to think about what makes up a true church. The Belgic Confession, the Dutch Reformed Church back in the early Reformation, um, devoted a chapter in their Belgic Confession to the marks of the church, right? And lists them as follows. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. 
It practices church discipline for correcting faults. There's our three, right? Right off the bat. In short, it says, it governs itself according to the pure Word of God. Rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head of the church. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. So that's the the Dutch. The Scots, in their Scots Confession, 1560. The notes, therefore, of the true Kirk, that's what the Scots call the church, the Kirk. The true Kirk of God, we believe, confess and avow to be, first, the true preaching of the Word of God, into the which God has revealed Himself to us, as the writings of the prophets and apostles do declare, Secondly, the right administration of the sacraments of Christ, which must be annexed unto the word and promise of God to seal and confirm the same in our hearts. And last, ecclesiastical discipline uprightly ministered as God's word prescribes, whereby vice is repressed and virtue nourished. Wheresoever these three former notes are seen or of any time continue, be the number of persons never so few, about two or three, there without all doubt is the true Kirk of Christ, who according to his promise is in the midst of them. Not that universal Kirk, but particulars such as were in Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, and other places in which the ministry was planted by Paul and were of himself named the Kirks of God. And so right there at the end, they, make a, a, they clarify between the, the universal church and the, the, the local church, right? Like the one in Galatia, the one in Ephesus. That's where the marks of the church uh, distinguish, uh, are distinguished. Calvin. Calvin in 1559, same time period, says, whenever we see the Word of God purely preached and heard... Did you hear that? There was an added word there. Purely preached and heard... Isn't that interesting that he would say that? Whenever we see the Word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. Now, he only lists two there. This is, that was in the Institutes. Um, but because he, I think, rightfully tied proper discipline to the right administration of the sacraments. Right, so he lists two, but built into that is the, the discipline. But read his institutes and you'll see that there's a major importance he places on church discipline. So he doesn't say it there, but um, it, is, it is elsewhere. And so these, these marks of the church, this, this is what, I mean, this is what you have to judge this church on. Right? Is... Is the word faithfully preached? Are the sacraments properly administered? And is there church discipline? Right? And if any of those marks are lacking, you should leave and go somewhere else. You really should. You should go to a church that has the three marks of the church. Right? But that you may not be in this church forever. I think these marks are there. I, w- I would hope so, um, by God's grace. But... When you go to a new church, if you move to a new town, you're going to have to make judgments about the church, right? And you should go and you should meet with the pastor and you should say, well, 
tell me, when was the last time you ever disciplined anybody? And if they look at you like a deer, you know, in the headlights, they, and they're like, discipline, what's discipline? Then you can just quickly move on, you can pay the check, go on from the coffee and find a different church, right? Um, I'm only half joking about that. But you could teach them at that point what church discipline is. But I mean, this is, you, this is what you would judge it on. Now, you will be tempted to judge it by a thousand other things. right? You'll be tempted to judge it by the color of the carpet. And if you do that in this church, you'll be gone. Right? I mean, it was cool at some point. <laughs> I know, it was orange. It was burnt orange. Yeah, I, I know. That's cool again, though, so maybe we should bring that back. Shag, burnt orange. But, but you will be tempted to judge... I mean, we could come up with a list of things that, you, that we all have judged a church by. Right? The height of the pastor. The music. Right? The quality of the coffee. The length of the service. The length of the preaching. Right? Um, the, the, the age of the building. The comfort of the seats in the sanctuary. I mean, these are the things that we will judge a church by and then we'll go home and our wives will tell us what we should think. Right? About the pews in the, the sanctuary. And then we'll have a dilemma on our hands and then we'll, make, we'll start to elevate those things as to of uh, first importance. But that isn't what we should judge the church on. What we should judge the church on is preaching, sacraments, discipline. Those three things. Those are the things that will impact your soul. Those are the things that will lead to you maturing in the faith or you not maturing in the faith. And so that, that, is where, um, that is where you have to have your commitments. So let's focus in now on... Well, there's one other thing I wanted to say, but... Um, The church is a household. It's something else I wanted to say. The church is a household. We read in 1 Timothy 3.15, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That's what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy about the church, that the church is the pillar and support of the truth, and, and it is the household of God, and the household of God is marked by three things. The household of God is marked by preaching, sacraments, discipline. That's how God the Father runs His house, right? The, the marks of, of our houses, right, we would say are instruction. We have identifying marks and we have correction. So instruction is like the preaching of the Word. The identifying marks of our house is our name, our reputation, our name, 
right? Our children take on our name. The wife takes on the name of the husband, right? That's what happens in the sacraments. The name of Christ is being imprinted upon you, right? Through baptism, through partaking of the Lord's table. And then there's correction in the household. There's discipline of the children, and that's just like church discipline. So we see these marks of a house, right? We see them in the house, and they're also marks in the church. Perhaps we're more readily able to accept those marks of the house and less able to accept things outside of the house. But what if any of those are lacking in a house? A house without identifying marks is hard to even imagine. No name, right, means no authority. The name of the father is placed on the children of the household. If there's no name, there is no father. And if there is no father, there's no authority. And if there's no authority... There's just lawlessness, right? If there's no instruction, if there's no teaching, well, then there, again, there's, um, then there's hatred for the children and not love for the children, right? Because if you refuse to discipline your children, you hate them, says the Word of God, right? And if there's no correction, there is, again, no love. Proverbs 13.24, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Okay? And so we see, you know, we see these marks of the church in lesser sense uh, elsewhere. And so hopefully that helps you understand um, this household of God. All right. In our, on our website, and in the membership class and at other times, um, perhaps when you were searching for a church, you came across our commitments, right? And on our commitments, we have what we, uh, you know, our basic doctrinal commitments, the things that we are committed to as a church. And one of those is the centrality of true preaching in which we said this, true preaching is neither a lecture nor a motivational pep talk. God's spoke, spokesman is not to suggest things for the congregation's consideration. He does not submit theories to the congregation for their evaluation. Rather, he proclaims God's truth, making piercing applications of that truth to the consciences of particular people. In the name of Jesus Christ, he commands men to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believing to understand and obey every word recorded in Scripture. God's word is both a hammer and a healing balm, so the preaching of it should lead God's people to fear and to love him, to sobriety and comfort as we face our sinfulness. We are committed to preaching the whole counsel of God's word, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And no Scripture at any time is to be rejected because it rubs cultural sensitivities the wrong way. In fact, it is precisely at those points where we need God's Word to wake us up from our slumber. Right? So that's, that's how we define it. That's how the session defined the centrality of the preaching of the Word of God. A couple things to pull out of there. Um, a couple things lost in preaching today, and that is that it's proclamation, right? It's not lecture, 
right? It's not just information download, right? There's information that's being downloaded tonight, but the whole point of it is, is to prick consciences, right? We preach not, not to fill up brains with facts. We preach so that the conscience might be moved, right? And that, that I mean, other than the therapeutic approach to everything today, right, where um, I'm supposed to as a preacher, I'm supposed to counsel you so that you can bear up under the awful, awful burden of everything. Um, I, it, it, what's lost today is that <clears throat> convicting proclamation that aims for the conscience, right? Piercing applications of the truth. Now, sometimes I do better at that than other days. Sometimes the Holy Spirit moves in your heart and you're, you're pierced and I have no idea what I said that would pierce you in that way. Right? The Holy Spirit works in ways certainly independent, always independent from myself. Right? And, but, but there's a way in which I could preach where I pull all of my punches. Where I try to blunt the Word of God so that it doesn't wound you. But I don't want to ever do that. I want the Word of God to wound you, right? And the Holy Spirit to, to heal you as He works sanctification in your life, right? And so you don't, you don't, um, you may think you need, you may think you need band-aids all the time, right? But honestly, what we need is to be thrown into the ring with the Word of God and let it punch us in the face, Right? That's what we need. That's what we need. And, and the word is a hammer. The word is a fire. It is not, um, it is not a teddy bear uh, to cuddle with. It is convicting. It is hard. So to focus in on the preaching of the word of God a little bit more. Um, remember Calvin said the word of God purely preached and heard. Right? And heard. That means that... Uh, you have a duty in preparing your hearts to hear the Word of God. You want to purely receive the Word of God. And so that means doing as you can to prepare to receive it. Humbling yourself so that you can feed from the hands of a puny man like myself. We'll get to that Calvin quote a little bit later. And you have to prepare yourself. By, and, and the only way you can prepare yourself for the right hearing of God's Word is if you pray and ask God to humble you and to soften your heart and to help you get past your morning fog or your evening fog, right? And pay attention to the preaching of the Word. Two passages that I want to go to. First one is 2 Timothy 4. Second Timothy four one through five is focused on the preaching of the word. This is the apostle Paul to Timothy, and he says, "I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom." Which is like, if you didn't think Paul was being serious, and he said that, then you should probably sit up a little bit and listen. 
right? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. <laughs> preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So there's one that defines what the preaching of the Word of God is to be like. It is to be it is to be in season and out of season. It is to be when, when, um, <clears throat> when it's easy and when it's hard. It is to be uh, encouraging and disruptive. Right? It's to be both of those sides of the equation. It's to, be the, it's, um, it's to include all of these things. Reproof, rebuke, exhortation. And all of that done with great patience and instruction. Right? It, it is not reprove, rebuke, exhort with great impatience and very little instruction. You know, pastors sin in this. They get in the pulpit and they're annoyed. I've sinned in this way many times. You get in the pulpit and you're angry. And you preach out of your anger. You'll discipline your children right th like this, right? You'll discipline your children in anger, and it won't be at all with great patience and instruction. You won't stop and think, okay, I'm shaping this child's soul by the things I say, and my words can wound and they can heal, right? And so if I want to wound, I better be serious about it. If I want to heal, I better be serious about it. But I can't be, I can't, I can't be flippant about this. I can't be impatient about this. But, but often, often people in the pews mistake the, the zeal of the pastor for being annoyed. Right? And so sometimes it seems as if I'm angry and impatient. But sometimes it's the Spirit working through me. And I'm zealous for what I'm saying. And that's why my voice gets like this. Because I want you to hear. And I'm pleading with you. Right? It, it, it does, it's, not, it's not me being impatient. And so today, you know, tone is everything today. Tone is everything. And so if anybody raises their voice, it means anger. No, not at all. Sometimes you got to shout. Sometimes you're moved and you can't whisper something. Sometimes zeal does come through a whisper. But, but today, as soon as, as, soon as the, the pastor scowls and says something loud, then people think, well, he's an angry man. Okay, repent of that, please. Sometimes I am. And rebuke me for it. But not always. It's not to be ear-tickling. Verse 3. Ear tickling. Right? What does ear tickling mean? It's not to please the ear. It's not, you know, it's not to just, you know, be 
dainties and morsels of, of good rhetoric that just, you know, it tickles the ears. It doesn't penetrate any farther than just like tickling the ears. Um, it is not to be that. It's not to be in accordance with our own desires. I mean, the preaching of the Word of God is not to be in accordance with our own desires, and that may be something that we mistakenly judge a church for. We go into it and say, my felt needs need to be met, and I need a preacher who meets my felt needs. My felt needs, not my needs, but my felt needs need to be catered to. Right? <clears throat> and so... That is not what we're to have. It's not to be in accordance with our desires. And, and beyond that is just carnal desires, right? We could find pastors that would give us freedom. They would allow us to be licentious. They would allow us to sin so that grace may abound. It would be the sort of cheap grace preaching that brings no conviction to it and allows you to, to live your life thinking you're going to heaven when you're actually a worldling bound for hell. And it's supposed to be truth, not myths. You're supposed to preach God's Word and not Robert Frost poems. You're supposed to preach God's Word and not tell stories about how you played football in high school. Right? You're, not to, you're supposed to preach God's Word. Now, I'm not opposed to illustrations, and I wish I had played football. It would have been good to get beaten into the ground. It would have been good for me. It would have been good for me to be in the military, too. That would have done the same thing as playing football. Maybe. Maybe worse. Um, and so I'm, I, but I'm not against illustrations. Some of the... Some of the uh, and, I, and I wish I could illustrate better. I wish I could do that uh, in my preaching. But I'm not, I don't feel that bad about it. We, we, ha we, we preach the Word of God. Right? We... That's why I preach through entire books. is because one, I don't want to try and think of what I have to preach the following week every week. It would be torture trying to pick a passage every week. I, I mean, I would, it would take me till Saturday evening to figure out what passage I was going to preach. And then I would only have a few hours to prepare. Right? But then, the, the other reason you expositionally preach through books is because... You can't then cherry pick. You can't get into a rut. You have to preach John 5 about Trinitarian recesses and mysteries. Right? And, and I would never choose to, to preach on that because you don't feel adequate to. But then God lays it before you and you have to. And I don't know how many times I've preached the next passage and it's been perfectly appropriate for something that's going on in the church. Something that's going on in somebody's life, right? Specifically, something that the elders have been working on that week. I mean, it happens. You would, you would, your mind would boggle. But that's what we should expect from a Holy Spirit who's active, who's alive, who is present. So it's to be truth and not miss. Only God's word is to be preached. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians 1. First Corinthians 1 at verse 17 <clears throat> says this. 
Again, the Apostle Paul, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both the Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So a few things to pull out of there. Notice that, that the Apostle Paul says of himself that he did not come to what? Baptize. He came to preach. Which is a bomb that goes off and blows up every sacramentalist that ever was. Okay? The Apostle Paul de emphasizes the sacraments and elevates the preaching of the Word of God. Right? We don't want to, we don't want to de emphasize the sacraments, but we don't want to preempt the preaching of the Word of God with the sacraments, which is what sacramentalists do. They say the preaching of the Word of God, meh, right? Ten-minute homily. But what we need to do is celebrate the Mass and the sacraments and the body of Christ, right? Actually present, they say. And so, I think this passage just demolishes the, the sacramentalist approach to the church and to the ministry of the Word, right? Paul says, I didn't come to baptize, and then, I mean, it's wonderful. He's like, I, I think I baptized Crispus. I might have, oh yeah, I baptized the household of Stephanus. But beyond that, I don't, I don't recall if I baptized anybody. Now, if you think baptism regenerates and ushers people into heaven, you would never speak like that. You would never speak like that. Right? But he does. I mean, he's almost, I mean, he, he's, he's almost too flippant. But the point comes across that it is in the preaching of the Word of God, not in a false view and a bad administration of, of the sacraments that is to be uh, preeminent in the church. And then he says this, not in cleverness of speech. And that is so relieving to me. Oh man, if I had to be clever in speech, there are clever preachers out there. They're clever in speech. They are eloquent. They know how to suck you in with the use of words, right? And we think it's the power of God when we're swayed by good-sounding rhetoric. We think that's the power of God. And, and, and that Pastor Dion who just says stuff is boring and lacks power. 
But here's the Apostle Paul like defending, I didn't do it in cleverness of speech. And there's a reason, he says, he didn't do it in cleverness of speech. And that was because he did not want the cross of Christ to be made void. Because cleverness of speech does what? Cleverness of speech draws attention to the one delivering that word, not to the word itself. Cleverness of speech draws attention to the pastor, not the one the the pastor is supposed to be preaching about. And so it essentially, cleverness of speech and being a pulpiteer and good rhetoric and aiming for good rhetoric, which the church through the ages, factions of the church have always tried to do, empties the church of the gospel, right? It makes the cross of Christ nothing. It removes the cross, which is the very heart of our salvation. It's the death of Jesus. It's our salvation. It's the propitiation of our very sins. And so, if, and, and so beware, brothers and sisters, beware of the conference circuit of preachers. Don't fall for popular preachers. I mean, I'm going to say that straight up. Don't fall for the conference circuit preachers. They will woo you by cleverness of speech. The problem is, is they preach the same thing everywhere. They've honed one thing till it's perfectly laid out. And they know what's going to affect you. They know when to pause. They know what hand gestures to use. Right? They've done it a thousand times. They get the same effect at each conference they go to. Well, reject that. Reject that cleverness of speech that we get addicted to. It has also the appearance of foolishness. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Right? Foolish message. By men not clever in speech. It won't please the wise man. It's not going to please the lawyers. It's not going to please the debaters of the age. Right? It's not going to please the university professors. It's not going to please the New York Times editorial board. It's not going to please the, the, the Beltway. It's not going to please Washington, D.C. It's not going to please senators and presidents and congressmen. It's not going to please any of them because it, they, in their eyes, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. The word preached. But all of their wisdom, it's been good for what? It's been good for them not to come to know God. That's what it's been good for. But the foolish wisdom of God has made preaching the salvation of those who believe. It's not science, it's not wisdom in a scholarly, scholastic, divorced from the Word of God sense. Right? It's not signs. It's God does not speak through messages written by clouds as much as you would like Him to. Right? God does not speak um, through the philosophers 
right? He preach, he speaks even still through the word preached, the spirit working in the word. And this thing we're doing tonight is how God speaks to his people through his word by the spirit applied, the spirit working in that word. And then he says that the preaching of the word is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God, the very power of God is the preaching of the Word. And so why, why does God do this through man? And I'll share my favorite Calvin quote as we come to the end of this. Calvin says this as he's contemplating this, as he's just a, he's just a man. He's just a weak man. He was a very sick man. He was always suffering in his body. He had kidney stones all the time. He had gouts. He had... He had terrible gut. He had, I mean, just you name it. Maybe that was typical of the time, but it seems that Calvin had uh, a heavier dose. And, you know, he's contemplating this, and he has to get up, and he preaches four or five times a week in Geneva. (laughs) Four or five times a week. Meanwhile, teaching classes. Meanwhile, heading up the the consistory and all those things. And I'm sure it weighed on him. And yet, he had a calling from God. And so he, he wrote this. He said, this is the best preaching through a man is the best and most useful exercise in humility when he accustoms us to obey his word even though it be preached through men like us and sometimes even by those of lower worth than us. If he spoke from heaven, right, he said, okay, he's imagining, okay, if God didn't use this means, he could speak from heaven. If he spoke from heaven, it would not be surprising if his sacred oracles were to be reverently received without delay by the ears and minds of all, for who would not dread the presence of his power? Who would not be stricken down at the sight of such great majesty? Who would not be confounded at such boundless splendor? And then he says this, But when a puny man, risen from the dust, speaks in God's name, at this point we best evidence our piety and obedience toward God if we show ourselves teachable toward his minister, although he excels us in nothing. That is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Sinful man. And yet it's God's means to humble us and receive and to have to eat out of the hands of a sinful man. It's good for all of us. We all need to sit under that. God could speak from heaven, but we would be blown away by it. Right? We would be like the Israelites who said, Now, Moses, we kind of would rather hear from you. This is terrifying. This is terrifying. So there's the mercy of God in this practice. But but remember, that's that's to to properly hear the preaching of the word, you have to prepare yourself with what Calvin says here. To remember that God has called me to feed from the hands of a lesser man than myself. God has called me to feed from, from a sinful man. And so pray that God would would make you humble. God opposes the proud, right? But gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble.
And preaching of the word is meant to humble every one of us all the time. And it's a mark of the church without which you do not have a true church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have given us called men who are to preach it. And we pray that that the pulpit of this church would be filled with faithful men, Father, who preach your word in season and out of season, that they would not be ashamed of the gospel. Father, that they would, they would preach not to tickle ears, but Father, they would preach so that the people of God would be built up, that they would do their wounding work and their healing work with great patience. Father, we pray, we pray that you would help us to humbly receive your word and that it would be food for our souls, that we would delight in it. Lord, I pray that this week we would be faithful to be in your word, that we would find great joy in it, that our hearts again would burn as we read your word and think about the glory that awaits us in your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.